You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. This is a podcast made in association with JNNP and the Association of British Neurologists. I'm Ralph Gregory, a consultant neurologist. With me today I have uh, James Overell, who's from the Institute of Neurological Sciences in Glasgow. So, hello James. Hi. So we're going to have a, a discussion today about um, updating people in what's new in neuropathy. So I guess there's quite a lot of things that we could uh, we could talk about. Perhaps I can ask you what uh, what do you think is the sort of the number one message that you'd like to give people uh, updating about neuropathy. Um, it's very difficult to to choose one thing in in a whole area, but the major things that are going on in neuropathy, from my view, are in the inflammatory neuropathy sphere in CIDP and GBS. We're learning much more about outcome of GBS from the outcome modeling scales. And we've also learned a lot in the last year about the treatment of CIDP and the use of steroids and IVIG in that disorder. Okay. So perhaps, I mean, the, the outcome is very interesting because we currently use the MRC scale, don't we? So um, well, how do you think that's going to change? Well, I've always found the MRC scale very frustrating, really, because it doesn't seem reproducible. You you go to see the patient and the same doctor seems to get a different answer on a different day. Different doctors get different answers. So the inter-observer reliability, I think, is very poor. This has actually been subjected to a new psychometric uh, method for analysing data called RASH modelling. And they confirm that we're really very poor at using the MRC scale. It's not a very good measure. They recommended that we switch it to a four-stage scale um, of paralysis, severe weakness, slight weakness, and normal strength. And they found that it responded much better with that. So I think we need to move away from four plus, three minus, to a simpler scale that actually means something. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So uh, what's happening on the therapeutic side with um, CIDP and GBS? Well, um, in GBS, the sort of interest in the last couple of years has been on whether we should be using more IVIG. So it's confirmed and is written about in the Cochrane Review that um, IVIG is effective in GBS. The trials have only been done in severe GBS. We don't really have a lot of data on, on mild GBS. And IVIG is um, as effective as plasmapheresis. What the uh, recent observational studies of, of trials have told us is that the outcome with IVIG is dependent on the change in an individual's IgG level after treatment. So if you give somebody IVIG, the amount by which their IgG level increases influences their outcome. If you have a high IgG change, when you compare your IgG level at presentation and at two weeks, then uh, you are much more likely to walk unaided in the long term, so your outcome is going to be better. If you have a low IgG change, then your outcome is much worse. And this has really led to the development of the uh, latest phase of IVIG trials in GBS, which are looking at second dosages of IVIG. So you give the first IVIG within the first two weeks, as is confirmed by all the trials. But if you have a poor prognosis based on the current outcome scale, which is called the EGOS scale at at, uh, day seven, then you're randomized to having another IVIG or placebo. And we will see whether whether higher dosages of IVIG result in better outcomes. This is something that many neurologists are doing already around the world. 
but we, we really need the evidence to confirm it's the right thing to do. And can you assess that by determining what an individual's IgG level is? Well, well yes, if you, the um, observational data is really based on um, IgG at presentation and IgG at two weeks and seeing the change. Clearly, that's too long. You need to have some kind of prognostic model or outcome that can tell you somebody's going to do badly and then you need to give them their second course of IVIG quickly within that two-week period um, and that's what the trial's trying to trying to decipher. That's very interesting. So what about on the, the more chronic inflammatory neuropathies? Well CIDP. CIDP uh, is an illness that most neurologists in, in the UK um, struggle with because while it's treatable, many of the patients that we end up treating, we treat for very long periods of time with IVIG, which is in scarce supply and is very expensive. My main message really would be that we need to be more active and reactive in using IVIG. The ICE trial told us that uh, when people who respond to IVIG are then randomized to placebo, 50% of them don't relapse. The methotrexate trial that we all conducted in the UK showed us that uh, when you randomize somebody on IVIG or steroid to placebo, many of them are able to reduce their steroid and IVIG dosage by a large amount, 44%. So we're over-treating people. And I think that what we also need to sort of bring in perhaps is the use of steroids. Steroids are as good as IVIG in CIDP. That's, that's been known for years, but I think their usage has, has lessened as the years have gone by because of our understandable concern about side effects. But recent trials have shown us that steroids can be very effective in CIDP and also result in fairly high rates of long-term remission after short short courses. So there was a trial called the PREDICT trial in Lancet Neurology that was published in 2010 that compared monthly dexamethasone to prednisolone and showed a remission rate after, after a six-month period of steroids, whether it was dexamethasone or prednisolone, a remission rate of 40% that was sustained at a year. So these people had their steroids stopped at six months. 40% of them were well after a year. The follow-up phase of that study was uh, published last year and showed a cure or remission rate in 33%. So if you give people um, prednisolone or dexamethasone for short periods of time, either one or two courses, you can cure about a third of them. Um, and this is a five-year follow-up study, so we're seeing very long-term benefits from short-term treatments. So from a practical point of view, if you've got a patient with CIDP, you know, what, what's your sort of framework? What do you... Um... Well, I mean, the problem that we have is which to start with, isn't it? You know, should you start with IVIG or should you start with steroids? And I think quite often the situation that you're faced with is somebody that may have GBS, so I think if they may have GBS, then you're going to start with IVIG. But I think there are many people who have, have a, a clearly more chronic illness. And I think in that group, I would argue that they should start on steroids, that they should have a period of steroid treatment for um, six months or so, and then it should be withdrawn. And do you pulse, you know, pulse them with... Well, the trials are, are suggesting that pulse treatment, whether it be with methylprednisolone or with dexamethasone, um, is as effective as oral steroids daily. And certainly the side effect profile 
on uh, dexamethasone looks as though it's lesser. So the trial work would suggest to us that we should be pulsing people monthly rather than giving them oral steroids each day. Now, my experience of that is small and is not particularly positive, but that's what the trial work shows us. And I think that we need to experiment a bit more with this. I think we need to use steroids more readily. I think we need to um, experiment with pulse treatments. And I think crucially we need to withdraw steroids Mm. quickly so we need to see steroids yes there are drawbacks of steroids but if you use them for six months and somebody is going to enter long-term remission well surely those risks are worth it so what about uh, other sort of chronic inflammatory neuropathies the paraproteinemic neuropathies that sort of thing what's what's new there i don't think much has changed in in the paraproteinemic world as a whole, but there has been new, new information on IgM anti-mag neuropathies. So this is a, um, a slow, insidious, length-dependent neuropathy, which occurs generally in older men um, and is associated with anti-mag antibodies and IgM paraproteins. It's a very well-defined clinical syndrome. These patients have sensory ataxia and distal weakness. It's difficult to treat. Generally, people with anti-mag neuropathy do not respond to steroids. They do not respond to IVIG, or if they do respond to IVIG, it's very transient and and partial. There's been a lot of interest in rituximab as a treatment for this group. And now two randomized controlled trials have been published in that arena. The first was published a while ago and was negative. It used a motor score as an outcome and in a sort of post hoc analysis, the authors claim that uh, there was some benefit from rituximab, which when it's subjected to proper review, I don't really think that there ever was. The most recent trial was published just a couple of weeks ago um, in the online first part of neurology, the REMAG trial from the French. This used a sensory outcome and again did not show any benefit from rituximab treatment as opposed to placebo. Again, there was a per protocol analysis taking away the dropout patients and some claims that there were some benefits and and there are lots of series and case reports that there are benefits from rituximab but the real evidence the I mean the evidence base to support rituximab I think is very low indeed. So from a practical point of view um, what are you offering your patients? From a practical point of view with anti-mag neuropathy I don't treat them. Okay so perhaps the uh, commonest neuropathy we see is, uh, is diabetic neuropathy. What have you got to tell us about in that area? I think uh, neurologists tend to regard diabetes as diabetes, one disease. I think we need to start regarding diabetes as two diseases. Type 2 diabetes is a disease that happens in overweight people and is characterized by insulin resistance. Type 1 diabetes has a pathophysiology that is completely different. And this really comes across in the neurological literature. So when you look at the trials that have uh, tried to see the benefit of glycemic control in people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and whether that can prevent neuropathy. There is really very little evidence that the control of glucose lessens the likelihood or severity of neuropathy in people with type 2 diabetes, whereas there is excellent evidence that the control of glucose lessens the likelihood of neuropathy in people with type 1 diabetes. The Diabetes Control and Complications trial showed a, showed a reduction in the likelihood of neuropathy with intensive glycemic control of about 60%, which was maintained long term. 
the very large studies in type 2 diabetes, the largest one is over 10,000 patients, has failed to show a benefit of glycemic control in preventing neuropathy. There are lots of data emerging now that, that really in type 2 diabetes we need to think about vascular risk factors much more. We need to think much more like diabetic physicians about vascular risk factors, about hypertension, about lipotoxicity, about hypercholesterolemia, about obesity, about vascular damage to nerves. That's what's going on in type 2 diabetes. We need to get away from the idea that this is a glycemic disorder. So in the sort of proximal diabetic neuropathies, what's, what's happening with the uh, old chestnut of, uh, of treating a vasculitis or not? You know, what's the current thinking about that? Um, do you mean what we used to call diabetic amyotrophy? Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Uh, the idea that giving these people steroids might be, uh, or even more aggressive immunotherapy might be a good idea. Not a lot of good evidence that that is the case, but lots of case reports and series and expert opinions saying that it might be worth treating what's now known as diabetic lumbosacral radicular plexus neuropathy, what a mouthful, with IVIG um, and others advocate steroids. There might be some sense in doing that if it was a disabling neuropathy that occurred over a short period of time, but generally these, these evolve over months. And there is no good trial evidence that we should be doing that. Okay. The other one that causes a, a lot of consternation in the clinic is the hereditary uh, uh, motor sensory neuropathies. What's, what's new in that area? Uh, well, um, Charcot-Marie tooth disease is the most common. And, and what's new, I guess, is maybe a confirmation of a previous figure. We've always had this idea that the uh, rate of CMT is about 1 in 2,500. A, a nice study from Newcastle recently showed, showed that that figure's about right when you account for underascertainment, and the rate of CMT is about 1 in 2,500 in the UK. We as neurologists often see the CMT phenotype and wonder how likely we are to actually make a genetic diagnosis. Well, generally about 60% of the people we see with um, a CMT phenotype will will have a genetic diagnosis uh, made once their genes are analysed. And about 90% of those um, turn out to be one of the four common genes, PMP22, myelin protein 0, GJB1, and mitofusin 2. So those four account for about 90% of the positive diagnosis of CMT. I think one of the interesting things in the last year has been the finding of genetic mutations associated with small fiber neuropathy. So the uh, gain of function mutations that lead to dorsal root ganglia and hyperexcitability, the NAV 1.7 mutations were described in a group of people with idiopathic small fiber neuropathy. Usually we we fail to diagnose these people, we, we look for diabetes, we might look for other things, but the vast majority of people with small fiber neuropathy, we never demonstrate what's caused their problem. And many of them have these uh, small mutations that uh, lead to dorsal root ganglion hyperexcitability. That's interesting because we often sort of think of uh, Charcot-Mary tooth having negative symptoms and if our patients have positive mm, symptoms it yeah. means it's not hereditary. So, uh, so that's not true. That's not not, well, true. I, We're not know, true in this no, subset. No, yeah. no, that's true. I, 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 yes, I mean I think that more and more of what we see in medicine generally but certainly in neurology is proving to be genetic and mm. those things that we regard as that we use the term idiopathic for, uh, you know, gradually being being clocked off in the genetic sphere. Yeah, uh, and uh, another uh, sort of rare cause of uh, small fibre neuropathy that we don't see very often, but when we do see it often, it's incredibly depressing, of course, is amyloids. So what's happening in 
with, with that condition, amyloid well, neuropathy? Well, lots of developments in uh, familial amyloid polyneuropathy. So um, the common gene in the UK that's been identified is the ALA60. But worldwide, the most common one is the uh, MET30 mutation. What we've seen in the last year, really, is the natural history of the MET30 mutation, the VAL-MET30 mutation. The idea that most UK neurologists have is that amyloid starts in the feet, it gradually evolves over years to the um, hands and feet. It starts with a painful neuropathy that evolves into a sensorimotor axonopathy, and usually there's autonomic involvement. Now, actually, the mutations that are most common in the UK, there is often early autonomic involvement, but worldwide, that autonomic involvement is often absent. Worldwide, the neuropathy quite often affects feet and hands within a year. So I think this is maybe a kind of clinical nugget to look for, the, the move to hands very quickly, um, or maybe even first, as a sign of amyloid neuropathy. And also the outcome, people with, with late-onset amyloid neuropathy um, in non-endemic areas seem to have a more aggressive disease that leads to death within a median of about seven years, which is shorter than the familial amyloid polyneuropathies in the endemic areas that are described in families. Important to understand that most of the people that are identified in non-endemic areas, like the UK, do not have a family history. And also important to be aware of the value of cardiac monitoring and cardiac investigations. So, you know, while many of, of the people in the recent series in non-endemic areas didn't have cardiac amyloid right at the point of diagnosis, that became evident quite quickly and was evident largely on echocardiograms. So somebody with a progressive neuropathy that looks a bit odd, that's evolving in a way that you might not expect, think about doing an echo. And what about the treatment of uh, amyloid neuropathy? Um, what's happening there? Well, important to understand that familial amyloid neuropathy looks like a treatable condition. There are two major strands, really. Uh, liver transplant is, is the standard of care, really, for familial amyloid neuropathy now. And, you know, very clear differences in the survival rates when people have their liver transplanted. The survival at 10 years was 100% in a recent study of people that had been transplanted with familial amyloid neuropathy as opposed to about 50% um, in those that were not. There's also interest in tefimidis, which is a drug which stabilizes the uh, misfolded amyloid tetramer, uh, which is made in the liver. And this was reported as showing a beneficial outcome on neuropathy endpoints in a recent randomized trial. So. The use of tefimidis, the use of liver transplant is becoming more and more common and, and you know, hence it's, it's much more important that neurologists in the UK are able to diagnose this condition. The best ways of doing so are with the TTI gene analysis and also biopsy. And I think we need to think about this condition more. We're going to see it more. And what do you tend to biopsy? Well, great question. Uh, it depends where in the world you, you go. So the uh, Portuguese tend to biopsy the labial and salivary glands. In the UK, we've often done nerve biopsies, and, and the yield from that is high. The yield from abdominal fat and, and skin biopsy is reasonable as well. Well, James, uh, uh, on behalf of the ABN and the JNMP, I'd like to thank you very much for that tour de force. Pleasure. 
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.